This is Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This series is part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. Jordan Levin has seen the media industry change dramatically. Since graduating from the RTF department here at UT, his career has taken him in many different directions. He started by working at Disney, he worked as an executive and ultimately CEO at the WB, which is now called the CW, and from there he helped start the innovative talent content company, Generate. He's also served as the first chief content officer for the National Football League. And recently, Levin has worked as the CEO for Awesomeness TV, a multimedia company which, among other things, produces cutting-edge digital content and features for youth audiences. Levin talks about some of the changes he's experienced, why he believes audiences should come first in the minds of executives, and some of the major trends he sees on the media horizon. He spoke on October 30th, 2017, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Those of you who don't know me and haven't been to these before, uh, I'm Elisa Parent, and I am the organizer, along with my colleague Cindy McCreary, of our Media Industry Conversation Speaker Series. And I am happy to welcome you to our session with Jordan Levin, who's the CEO of Awesomeness and an RTF alum. Before we dig into our conversation, I want to just say some thanks, as always. Uh, first off, to my colleague, Cindy McCreary, and also to our wonderful grad support staff, Brett Siegel, Kyle Rather, Annie Major, and Britta Hansen. And thanks to the support of the RTF faculty and staff, especially our chair, Tom Schatz, and uh, Alana Wakeman for all of her assistance promoting the event, as well as to Dean Jay Bernhardt and Assistant Dean Mike Wilson. Having said that, uh, I want to go ahead and just give you a little bit of background, although uh, most of you are well aware of uh, some of the experiences of our guest. Uh, Jordan has an impressive range of credentials, uh, starting with time at Disney to moving to uh, CEO of the WB Network, Television Network, founder and CEO of Generate, and we'll talk a little bit about what each of these companies has done in his role with them. Uh, then also executive vice president and general manager of Microsoft's Xbox Entertainment Studios uh, to chief content officer of the NFL, and then now, Awesomeness. CEO of Awesomeness. CEO of Awesomeness. Because so, come on, middle-aged Jew, <laughs> what says awesome like this? A little bit of so hopefully we can walk through a bit of his career trajectory, his roles and responsibilities at Awesomeness, and his views on the media industries, and end with some advice for all of you. So let's go ahead and dig in with, first off, a brief sizzle reel. A prerequisite sizzle reel. A prerequisite sizzle reel. Okay. And I'm relatively new there, so I have to say that these are sort of new to me as well. Let me get the. It's okay, it's quite short. Hey, 
Another slide up here, or are we good? I, we can keep it on the awesomeness. Okay. I think that works. All right. <laughs> First of all, thank you all for showing up after last night's game. <laughs> and if you fall asleep, I won't take it personally. <laughs> well, since we started with that uh, reel, maybe you can first just tell us a little bit about uh, awesomeness and size and scope and sort of how you fit into it. So, um, the best way to think about awesomeness is that it's a media company. And it operates really similarly to a lot of other media companies at its core in terms of its infrastructure. What's different is the way that it goes about reaching and connecting with an audience. And the focus of awesomeness is essentially Generation Z or you know, folks under 24, 25, roughly. And that's where, if you work backwards from that and you try and think about, okay, how do you build a company that's going to have a brand that resonates with younger consumers, you're going to go about building a media company a little differently than a traditional media company, and you're going to do a lot of things the same as well. So I am the CEO of the company, and I started uh, the very beginning of the summer and took over for the founder of the company who was a producer director named Brian Robbins. And I was pretty uh, close to the company, almost like a you know, friend of the court because Brian um, was a successful producer for us at the WB Network, which is now the CW. He produced One Tree Hill and Smallville and a number of other shows. And he basically started to see how much his kids were responding to talent online. And if you remember, there was this early sort of YouTube influencer named Fred with a super high voice. And his agent was pitching him on making a Fred movie. And he, um, and he was like, I, I, what are you talking about? And he asked his kids who had some friends over, like, do you know about this Fred and they're like yeah when he said would you see a movie with this guy and they said like tonight and he thought <laughs> okay there's something here so he financed the movie himself and then sold it to Nickelodeon made a lot of money just selling it to them and then it was one of their most successful movies ever 
you sort of realize there's something here with this sort of new set of talent and the use of YouTube. And he, he ended up at a time when YouTube was building all these channels and funding these channels. They were giving away these grants. He basically said, I think there's a chance to go after Nickelodeon and MTV, um, but using YouTube as the basic platform. And that's sort of how Awesomeness or Awesomeness TV started. And then over the course of the five years, it grew into uh, three different channel brands. There's Awesomeness TV, there's DreamWorks TV, which is sort of kids, six to 11, six to 12, you know, Nickelodeon Disney Channel competitor. And then there's a new uh, brand called Awestruck, which is young moms, sort of millennial moms. And really we call them networks now because unlike in their inception where they only existed as YouTube channels, they now live across all social media platforms and we produce content for each platform relevant to that platform. So what we do on Instagram is gonna be different than what we do on YouTube, which will be different than what we do on Facebook or Snap or so on and so forth. And he developed a studio division around that. And so he, he was starting to make TV series, producing TV series for other buyers, predominantly SVOD, subscription video on demand, Netflix, Hulu, um, Verizon Go90, um, uh, YouTube Red, because that's generally where uh, Netflix, because that's generally where um, younger consumers are consuming. So if you take, again, a big sort of step backwards, what it's developed into now, along with the film division, is, um, is this company that has these three brands built around these networks, and the networks get used, like any big media company, to aggregate an audience, sort of build a brand around that audience, and then use that, those networks, that distribution, as a marketing platform to create value in and around intellectual property. And so the intellectual property side is driven by the studio division, and the studio division produces the short form content for the networks. And then they produce long form TV series for all these various different buyers. And they produce movies. And the movies, maybe four to six a year, about one a year gets a theatrical release um, last year it was a movie called You Get Me. I'm sorry, it was a movie called um, Before I Fall. And then there's movies that'll go straight to SVOD, like You Get Me, and some of them go to EST or Electronic Sell Through. And they're all done micro-budget, roughly around three to five million a piece, and based on various output deals and international, and we have our own international distribution, sort of know that if we do them within certain price ranges, that we're covered, and then you sort of play for the upside. Is there a management component built in or? So around each of the networks, there is what are called a multi-channel network or an MCN. And you may have heard of MCNs because they were quite in vogue a couple years ago. Maker was probably the most well-known MCN. And essentially an MCN is a loose network of talent. They bought a company called Big Frame, which was in the MCN business. Well, at the same time, they reached out to their audience and said, like, hey, do you want to create stuff for us? And if you want to create stuff for us, we'll give you some tools to be able to do that, and we'll help you distribute it. And that desire to bring the audience in was really a good idea strategically. And what 
the reason MCNs have sort of soured is because the economics of them are really bad. Like if you're a YouTube creator, you know, you can assign your content management system or your CMS to a maker or an awesomeness or a full screen or whatever MCN there is, and they'll provide you a lot of help bringing you brands and a number of other things, but really the company only gets a small percentage of the ad revenue that's generated on YouTube. The benefit for us is we really view it as a strategic uh, piece, um, both in and around DreamWorks TV and Awesomeness and Awestruck. There's thousands of creators, and we view it as a talent sort of development vehicle. It's a way to identify talent, both in front of and behind the camera. And we view it as a means to market what we do. So again, it, it sort of extends the reach of what we do because we have this bigger platform now to reach people. But we don't talk about it a lot, and I don't think about it a lot, yeah. honestly, because it's not, it's not a big <laughs> revenue driver at all. It's really much more of a strategic piece. So I'm curious, uh, you're part of uh, sort of owned by NBC, Comcast, NBC, Universal, <laughs> and Hearst, or is that? Yeah, it's a great, so, um, so early on, they were, they, they were launching the network off of this YouTube channel grant money. Then Jeffrey Katzenberg and DreamWorks um, bought them. And then at the same time DreamWorks wanted to buy them, uh, Hearst was looking to buy them. DreamWorks got their first, sold a piece to Hearst, and then about two years ago, sold um, another piece to Verizon. And then DreamWorks sold to Comcast NBC Universal, sitting within the Universal uh, Filmed Entertainment Group because the acquisition of DreamWorks was really meant to complement Illumination Entertainment, which does the Despicable Me movies, amongst other things. And combining DreamWorks animation and illumination created a pretty, has created a pretty formidable competitor to Disney on the family animation side. And Comcast then realized, well, we got this thing called awesomeness alongside it. So Comcast owns 51%, uh, and the other 49% is split between Hearst and Verizon. Gotcha. So are you... Do you engage regularly with those different entities in various ways, or? Yes, spend most <laughs> of my day today engaging. Yeah, um, yeah. Com Comcast, specifically Universal, <clears throat> um, operates as a majority shareholder. Right. And so we're trying to figure out what the right level of integration is, because maintaining independence and culture is important. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, um, recognizing the value and rights of the other shareholders is mm -hmm. really important in terms of Hearst and uh, Verizon. But it is starting to operate more as a division of the larger company. But Comcast overall as a company, and specifically NBC Universal, generally compared to other large media conglomerates, allows people a little more freedom to operate their businesses and maintain an independent sense of culture mm -hmm. than some of the other companies which really try and drive integration fully. Right. So we're figuring it out. I mean, they got it. Then they were figuring, is Brian going to stay or leave? Because Brian's really a filmmaker at his core. 
Um, and he was trying to figure out, do I stay or do I leave? Uh, because he was not, it's, it's, it's a big company now. And, um, and, um, and then once he decided to leave, they're figuring out who was coming in. And then once they figured out who was coming in, and I had previous relationships with the people I work with at uh, Universal and NBC and Comcast more largely. And so now, yeah, we're trying, to, we're trying to figure it out. And there's a lot of benefits that can come from that. You know, and there's a lot of areas where, you know, you, know, you want to try and make sure you're balancing what you think is best for the company, which what is best for the overall company. But the interesting thing, and it's something to think about with companies, especially these newer companies that generally are getting invested, that, that big media companies are taking investment stakes in, is when you're an independent and you're owned by other people, generally the big push, especially within digital media companies, is to generate a return on investment. And so even if those companies are going to take a lot of, be very patient, putting in a lot of money into the business, they want to see a light at the end of the tunnel at some point in time. When you are owned by a company like Comcast, NBC Universal, and Verizon, predominantly, those companies are huge companies, and they're really looking for strategic value. So the question of how do we work with those companies is different now than if they were just one of six investors because now as owners, especially Comcast, they're really looking to try and say, how is this strategically beneficial to us? And ultimately, the simple answer there is that when you think about NBC Universal's portfolio, specifically their network portfolio, they have uh, preschool brand in Sprout, which is now Universal Kids. They've rebranded it as Universal Kids. And then you have to, the next youngest sort of consumer-facing brand as a sort of network brand, if you will, is really Bravo or E, which is generally going to be median age in the mid-late 30s, early 40s, depending on where they're at. I'm not exactly sure. So Comcast within its NBC Universal network portfolio has this gap mm. um, that Disney doesn't have because Disney has Disney Channel and all the Disney Channel properties and then they have um, uh, Freeform which was ABC Family and others, Nickelodeon obviously is, Nic I mean Viacom obviously is Nickelodeon and MTV and VH1 and others. So from a competitive standpoint, thinking about can, you, can this become sort of a next generation, more forward-thinking network brand yeah. that allows us on a daily basis to have a touch point with a younger audience? That's, that's where the strategic value starts to come in. Gotcha. Well, and you've used the word network, and uh, I'm curious because you've come, you know, you started at well Disney and then WB right. Network, and I'm curious if you can sort of do comparisons and maybe Tell us how you see working for awesomeness as a digital network right. uh, different or similar to your experiences in broadcasting. So, so I always start with the consumer mm -hmm. and how do consumers see, see things. And I don't think consumers see a divide between digital and traditional. Um, and the industry has a tendency to call all these business digital, but um, 
everything's digital at this point. <laughs> everything's distributed digitally. They're digital prints, so not digital prints, they're just digital files, so on and so forth. So I generally try and stay away from that because it connotates a certain economic model. Right. It's largely predicated on going out, attracting an audience, and trying to monetize that through advertising, which in the digital, digital advertising is difficult. Um, from a network standpoint, I always think, uh, you know, networks, networks in their sort of simplest form are about connecting different people, different platforms, different channels together where the sum of the parts is greater than a single part. So it's, it's essentially extending reach. And traditional television networks really were predicated upon reach. How do I string together a number of different affiliates to create as much reach as possible. Um, technology limited the ability to, um, to, to create a low barrier of entry for people who didn't have huge capital because you needed capital to put transmitters up you know, in West Austin for TV stations and then when cable started to emerge as a distribution platform, people needed to lay that coaxial cable either in the ground or on the telephone poles, and now it's converted into copper. And, um, and when you think about satellites, it's putting satellites up. To me, the biggest change in media that's occurred um, really since the advent of mass media has been social media, because social media, um, created this low barrier of entry for anybody to be able to publish content and view content wherever you're at and really put the consumer much more firmly in control. So to me, a network today is still, still has the same mission. It's how do you aggregate as many people as you can. And if you're going after younger consumers who, by the way, Gen Z will be the biggest demographic group is, is the big, biggest demographic group uh, in, the, in the country right now and will have the biggest spending power in the country very shortly um, and will eclipse millennials. But if you're going to reach an audience, you got to go where they are. And they're increasingly on, on social platforms and they increasingly consume non-linearly, which means I doubt with exception of sports or news or maybe, you know, a big... Uh, serialized series where you want to watch it immediately because everyone's going to talk about it like a This Is Us, you're rarely tuning in day and date to a specific network to watch something at the same time everyone else is watching. You binge watch, you watch on your own terms on whatever device, and the devices are pretty interchangeable, and my guess is you probably watch more on mobile than older people, and you don't have you know, as big an issue with the fact that you know, you're going to watch a video on you know, this screen, you know, as compared to that screen. Um, but the other piece that social really changes is um, it, it allows the consumer also to be a creator. And it creates a much more fluid two-way street. So when I used to run a broadcast network, um, you would look at TV ratings and you would try and read the tea leaves of TV ratings and you would do research with focus groups to try and see what people thought of a show. And then way back in the late 90s, in sort of the early days of the internet or broadband, there was 
chat rooms that started to develop. And what we saw at the WP was that younger audiences would love to sort of aggregate around shared affinities of interest or programs and chat with other people. You know, no different than what occurs now, but they were sort of, you had to go into these chat rooms and share. And we had younger creators like J.J. Abrams and Joss Whedon mm -hmm. and Ryan Murphy and Greg Berlanti and all these other folks who wanted to get in there and see what people were saying and then were very open about saying, this is who I am and what do you think of this and what do you think of that? And would make changes as a result. And so that increased, I think, the sense of sort of loyalty and passion for the show because audiences felt like they were really um, uh, uh, much more part of the process in changing those shows and then they became evangelists for those shows. And so now you flash forward with social media, you have this ability, again, not only to comment on mass-produced professional content, but you can experience any type of content and you consume content largely in feeds and the feeds to me, really normalize the um, nature of what is considered entertainment, meaning you might be viewing something that comes from uh, Universal, and then you might be viewing something that comes from Awesomeness, and then you might be viewing something that comes from an influencer, and then you might be viewing something that comes from your friend, and you might be viewing something that comes from an athlete, and it's all, it all starts to have the same value ultimately. So to me, network, again, loosely speaking, is just how do you go out and reach and piece together and connect where the audience is. Um, but there's, there's inherently um, a little less control because the nature of that relationship is no longer unidirectional. I'm not just speaking to you from a mountaintop. We're communicating together. And I think that's I think that's the biggest change, the fact that um, uh, consumers are also creators. So you have to create what the consumers are going to like, but you also have to share what they create. And the fact that, um, that the discovery of the content has changed, meaning a traditional network, you could advertise to an audience and you could you know, very easily in an era of three networks, just put a TV guide ad in and maybe an ad in a newspaper and, or not. And there were TV listings and you would check ABC, CBS, NBC and you'd see which one you wanted to watch right. and it was eight o'clock or seven o'clock. Now, if you again go back to like a traditional media paradigm and say, okay, what barriers have fallen and what have raised? Well, in the past, distribution, huge high barrier. Cost of production, the reason we have the rail car sitting on Guadalupe is because that was what it used to take to produce. You needed a sound stage, you needed the lights hanging you know, from the pipe, you needed the cameras, you needed all that stuff. Um, that's what created the back lots in the Hollywood. Um, those two have fallen because this device allows you to shoot something now in high def. You can edit on that if you want and you can distribute to the world. So the biggest barrier of entry, which used to be a really low barrier of entry, is, okay, how does it get discovered? And how it gets discovered also feeds very much into social media because my guess is you, like most people, are increasingly influenced by what the people who influence you have to say. And those influencers aren't just 
TV critics. They're going to be best friends and other people who you follow, and you're going to look to talent that you like and care about, and when they're in things, that's important too. That's, that's helpful to frame the network connection. I appreciate that. Um, but that's, by the way, that's really hard for even when we talk about what we are within a traditional sort of media company, they yeah. still struggle with that too. Yeah. Well, what do you mean you're a network? You know, you, you go back and you explain. Same goal, same tactics, same infrastructure, just instead of broadcast affiliates or multi-channel, you know, video providers, um, you're, you're, again, reaching out to other platforms that reach that consumer. So related to old to new or comparisons, advertising, mm -hmm. like, do you do branded content or in what, to what extent are you dealing with advertisers in similar ways to how you would deal with them back in your network days, your broadcast network days? Um, <laughs> well, it's funny. I think advertising's come full circle because if you think about the beginning of television, the beginning of television, the shows were largely sponsored um, and underwritten by brands, so Texaco Star Theater and you know, Colgate Comedy Hour and so on and so forth. In fact, they were really conceived by and packaged uh, by the various ad agencies. And the TV networks would just lease time to the producers, which is really similar to the way the relationship is working right now with, with big social media companies who are basically taking a piece of advertising or, or selling to some degree the ad time. And at some point, oversimplification, and I'm sure you already know this, but the TV networks decided if they kept the time and basically commissioned the shows themselves that they would make more money selling the advertising in it. Where we're at right now is that there's so much ad inventory that the pricing of advertising is compressing. And it's becoming also incre increasingly programmatic. And as consumption shifts to digital platforms, um, those platforms, the advertising on those platforms is disproportionately controlled by Facebook and Google. Facebook and Google control nearly 85 to 90%, I think the number is, of all digital advertising, all that inventory. And then Oath, which is the combination of AOL and Yahoo, which Verizon owns, controls, I think, 5 to 10%, somewhere in there. Don't, I'm not exactly right, but, but those are the rough numbers. So it's impossible to drive pricing on digital advertising in the sort of passive inventory manner that you might sell. So if I'm selling pre-rolls or I'm selling banner ads or I'm selling takeovers, it's really hard to compete, especially because every time one of you posts a video on YouTube, you've just created a pre-roll, so now there's another piece of inventory. So advertising's always been, pricing for advertising has always been driven by scarcity. So the way to achieve scarcity in a world of commoditized advertising is really to um, create content in partnership with the advertiser. And that can be as easy as a sponsorship or brand integration or can be as complicated as trying to get to the heart of 
what is it that you, a CMO of a company, are trying to solve? What is the problem that you have? And how can we help you solve that problem? In our case, a lot of advertisers come to us to say, well, the problem I have is I'm having a hard time reaching this next generation of consumers because they're not in traditional places as much. And so when I advertise on TV, it's not as effective. And what that then leads to is saying, well, they're not, they're not going to accept just a passive ad. There has to be some sort of alignment in terms of values and what you're trying to accomplish. So in the most extreme case, we'll produce series that start with some underlying goal of the marketer. But really, for us, we're trying to protect that it achieves um, the goal of being entertaining. So we're wrapping a production that we're doing that started with Gatorade coming to us and saying we want to feature young women high school athletes playing sports because they did a study that said that young women were playing less sports for a number of reasons, which I was actually surprised to hear. And they wanted to show that there was a benefit to playing sports because in their studies they've uh, 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 looked at research that says young women who play sports have a much better likelihood of success in, um, in business um, and other areas. So we're doing a series about a girls um, high school lacrosse team and really there isn't anything directed with Gatorade in it outside of maybe a little product here and there but if general their goal is just to get that consumer base to think about sports differently. So that's a way that we work. And then it gets very complicated in terms of how you put a media plan in and around that, which take forever to discuss. <laughs> but loosely speaking, yes, all of our, in fact, all of the ad revenue from our company is 100% branded content partnerships. Um, we don't sell any media inventory. So are the, when you talk about like TV series or uh, publishing show, like is there any sort of standard length, both in terms of episodes or in terms of seasons, or how variable is yeah, it we, now? We sort of work backwards from models that fit into um, the ability of our sales folks to license and sell what we do around the world and then in various windows. Um, as simply as possible, we, uh, we think about various windows of content. So what we, we have, we have a number, let me, let me back up a sec. We have a number of output deals, which are essentially deals in place that say there's you know, a, a commitment to distributing X number of series or X number of movies. And if, if you piece those deals together domestically and internationally, you know that you have a certain amount of revenue coming in. And based on that revenue, that then allows us the ability to say, we're going to green light something. So we're in a fairly enviable, enviable position because of these various deals that we have. We don't generally go to a buyer, like a network or a film studio, and say, hey, we have this great pitch. Do you want to buy it? Or to an advertiser, we have this great pitch. Do you want to underwrite it? which is the trap a lot of other companies are in that makes it really hard for them to grow. We decide what we want to make. 
we know that we can fall back on these output deals, but if we really like something, like we just made a movie based on a young adult novel and we, um, we showed it to a couple people, Netflix came in, took it off the table, we've made back our money, you know, by 3x what we put into it. And we have that deal with Netflix. And each buyer allows for different sort of ownership and control rights. So it gets a little complicated. For us, the best, for, for us, a threshold issue is we have to own it. We're building a library. So we're not a producer for hire. We own it and we control it. That then defaults to, well, how long are you licensing it to somebody for? And ideally for us, we do a short-term license so that we can then sell it to other places in different windows. So there's Hulu content of ours that goes on Hulu that has spent a year on Verizon Go 90, then it goes to Hulu, and then we'll take it from Hulu, and then we'll probably use it ourselves as we start to build these OTT networks up and our own networks, because that's ultimately where we want to go is to be able to be our own producer and buy what we make ourselves. And then we do international. And because of that, and international is a big piece and the domestic buyers are a big piece, you generally want to be somewhere in the range of six to 12 episodes per season and at minimum roughly around 22 minutes. So what we have a tendency to do is stick, even if it's dramatic, we stay closer to 22 minutes rather than 44 minutes in length. So generally half hour versus hour. And sometimes we'll do 11 minutes and then um, uh, package them together as a half hour, but distribute them as 11 minutes. That works a little better for mobile content mm. than it does for um, uh, uh, sort of more of the uh, uh, larger SVOD players, but they have different, they have different needs. Wow. And then, and then part of that, too, is on the flip side on production, keeping the cost low on production. So right. we're not spending what um, traditional television studios spend. We're not spending 3 to $5 million for an episode of TV. We're much closer to sort of $500,000. Oh, wow. But because we're making so much, it starts to amortize out. Like we have... It's a not-so-sexy backlot, but in the Northwest Valley, of, <laughs> uh, out in Canoga Park, we have a number of different warehouses that were probably used at one point in time for adult entertainment that are all um, collected together, but it's $2 a square foot. Right. It's great. And we built standing sets on there. There's a high school set, which we've doubled as a hospital and other things, and it sort of functions as a backlot. It's just a much scrappier, more efficient version of a backlot with... Um, offices for production, offices for post-production, prop rooms, wardrobe rooms, everything like that. So the more you make, if you're really smart about how you make it, you can start to amortize the cost out, especially if you know you're always going to be in production. So you're just sort of rolling um, uh, uh, your resources from one production to the next. So most of your production is happening in that space then, or... Uh, um, are you outside of where We do a lot of practical as well. Because yeah. there's only usually one production we can house on that high school set. It doubled, they, again, they were really smart about it. They doubled it for nearby high school the exterior, so you can shoot in and outside of it. Um, but um, uh, we're, it, it, 
it, it all depends. Yeah. It all depends on the most efficient way to do it. So is awesomeness itself on the universal lot or are you in a separate? No, we're separate, completely separate. We just moved into uh, a new space. Believe it or not, the company for five years got so big so quickly that sort of Frankensteined out over seven different offices, all loosely near one another, but across the street in a big building here, there, the other. So we just all came together under one space. And the space that we have is about 100,000 square feet. We have one very large stage and then we have, and we have sort of standing sets on it. So, and that's largely used for our, our networks who are shooting video daily. We designed the space to be able to shoot in the space a lot and feel like the audience is led into it. Um, so we don't essentially are sort of tearing down the fourth wall and allowing them to sort of see how it's done and understand the people who work there so we're not all nameless, faceless folks. Um, got a big green screen room. It, our, all of our posts moved over there, but it's funny because we literally moved in there a week ago today, and <laughs> a lot of people didn't know one another, wow. even though they've been there for a number of years. There's a just, couple hundred people with the company. A couple hundred people in LA, full time, but another 100, 125 freelance in production. And then there's an office in New York, which is sales and essentially licensing and distribution, advertising sales. and content sales, that's about 25 people, and then we have about 12 people in London um, that are building out, there's an awesomeness TV UK, there's an awesomeness TV in France, Germany, Spain, and Brazil. Wow. And then there's some content sales folks there and content sales folks in Singapore right now because we're starting to broaden Asia. And that was sort of my question, because you're mentioning a lot about the sort of dependence on the global market for licensing. So how much or in what ways are you thinking about global distribution in terms of the types of content you're developing? Or does that figure into the creative? Absolutely. So I think what's going on right now is that in the same way, in the same way that when cable launched, it created all this spectrum for brands to come in and fill it, meaning there was all this beachfront property when cable first launched. And um, you had your big broadcast networks, but you didn't have any sort of more niche networks. And ESPN went in and grabbed sports, and CNN went grabbed news, and MTV grabbed youth, and Lifetime grabbed women, and so on and so forth, and sort of staped their claim and said, that's where we're at. For a whole host of reasons, which largely all uh, uh, our result of big media companies now being completely tethered to the traditional sort of MVPD model, they're having a hard time unlatching from that. You're starting to see that happen with all these emergence of these skinny bundles and things. But they're still very wedded into traditional way of doing things. While they've been trying to manage this change, there's been these new market entrants like Netflix and Amazon who are building global media brands. And I would argue Netflix and Amazon are building the broadcast networks of the world. And that the next wave to come is sort of the cableization of the space and that the companies that create brands that have a global uh, identity um, are gonna be in an advantageous position. So our goal is to be sort of the MTV worldwide media company, if you will, the brand that you associate with youth. Um, 
And we have a good first mover advantage, but we need resources and investment and partners who understand that, and we need to move quickly before other people do that as well. So when you think about international, there's really two goals of international. One is build the brand up, try and replicate what we do domestically so that you have a network, so that when you sell content into that territory, that is exports, so when we sell a freakish into the market, that the demand is higher in that market because the buyers know, oh, I know what awesomeness TV is because we have an awesomeness TV network in our market. And at the same time, there's localized content opportunity, meaning that you can create programming in that market. And if that programming's successful, you can then import that back into the US and try and set that up as a TV series or movie. And right now, with those international channels that we have, they're taking a lot of the formats that work on the network, the short form video, con you know, dating shows and craft shows and things like that, and they're replicating them in these different marketplaces. Right, right. So that's, that's how we think about international. I think about it less from the standpoint of which markets are the biggest markets in mm -hmm. terms of GDP or advertising. I think about it more in which markets are the most, um, um, have the biggest appetite to import US content, and which markets have the most advantageous regulations to create localized content that you can own and that you can export. Because there's markets like France, which are big markets, but the challenge in France is they want everything in French, <laughs> so they're not a great buyer of content. And then if you produce content, they want, they have very strict regulations about foreign ownership. Right. So then you're really a producer for hire in that market. So we're going through that exercise saying, well, maybe France shouldn't be where we're investing a lot of time. Maybe Scandinavian countries make more sense because the content that comes out of Scandinavia generally gets adapted in the US with a high degree of success. And they, in turn, like English-speaking content. So that's the way we think about it. That's very helpful. I'm wondering if we can backtrack just a little bit because I know you have been involved with so many different youth-oriented networks or initiatives. And Generate was ahead of the curve when you were with it. And so how much has your thinking evolved even from the time when you were at Generate? Maybe you can briefly talk about yeah. what you did with Generate and how things have changed. Generate really simply, it, it, when I was talking early on about chat rooms, so what happened at the WB was we started to see how digital was facilitating the ability for audiences to sort of aggregate around shows. And at that point in time, what we were doing was, was a, a, a bit of a, a radical idea, which was to create content that speaks specifically to a group of people and doesn't try and speak to everyone. And so we developed WB.com and started investing a fair amount in digital. Um, I, when I left the WB, I thought that going forward, creating content required you to think about all the different parts of the ecosystem and the changes that were gonna happen. And so I wasn't exactly sure who was gonna win or lose from a distribution standpoint, but my thesis was that there's gonna be a growing demand for content and that you can go through a traditional path and try and sell something to a studio or a network and be a producer who rides along for fees and points, 
or you can start to try and incubate ideas on some of these other platforms that are relatively lower risk, but if you can get an audience excited about it and you can prove the concept, you, can, um, you could control your destiny to a greater degree. So really, whether it was comic books or whether it was these digital platforms, and this was all right before YouTube started, but I thought digital video was sort of always on this horizon. I thought it was gonna sort of ramp really quickly and create these opportunities for creators and consumers and advertisers to work directly with one another. I didn't think it was gonna replace the traditional system. I just <laughs> thought it would complement the traditional system, and that's what Generate was. And we partnered with a talent management company because I sort of thought that that same opportunity existed for talent, mm -hmm. that talent in the past really didn't have many choices, but digital was gonna open up choices to be able to access funding through brands or go direct to consumer or what have you. So that, that's really what Generate was. And I, I think that um, in retrospect, the changes in the marketplace took longer than I thought they were gonna change. I, didn't, I don't think I recognize the degree to which legacy players would sort of you know, get dragged kicking and screaming into the future <laughs> and how many technological issues were gonna exist in terms of online video. And I also really underestimated, or I overestimated, I should say, um, advertisers' willingness to start to fund content and work with creators directly. Um, I always had been on the receiving end of trying to sell traditional commercials to advertisers when I was at the broadcast network. And what you would always hear from them every year was, hey, you keep making us pay more for less. And if you go back to the early days of TV, you know, they would say, boy, I wish it was like it was, we, sh we, we gave up our control. It would be great if we could get it back. I always thought digital prevented an opportunity for them to get it back, and when they got it back, they really didn't know how to think about making that investment or taking on that risk, working directly with creators and playing more of a central role. Some do, there's some really enlightened companies that do, but um, in general, um, the unknown nature of it um, and the fact that it's not in those companies' DNA to really create content has led them pretty much on the sidelines and really defaulted a lot of the value that I thought they could capture to the big, media, the big digital media platforms like Google and Facebook, who they now pay them instead <laughs> of paying the traditional media companies as much. And the one area that is interesting is this whole idea of influencer marketing. There's a lot of brands who want to pay and work with social media influencers. And that's a lot of what, who we work with as well. And the way we think about it is when we cast projects, we want to cast projects with a mix of traditional actors and social media personalities because essentially that helps address some of the marketing issues. And it's also the talent that generally a lot of young people really identify with and want to see grow their careers and so get excited when they're in a movie or get excited when they're in a, a TV show. Mm -hmm. And so we really try and balance it out because we don't want to hang a show too heavily on someone who can't really do the job. So we'll start them out in something, a smaller part, and then if it's right. success, grow them up. Brands will try to do business with them. A lot of times they would try and go to them directly and then they realized we don't know how to manage talent. We don't know how to speak to the talent. We can't communicate with them. The <laughs> influencers would get really frustrated and say, what am I supposed to do? I don't, you know, These brands are asking for all this data. I don't have the data. 
So we play this middleman role a lot with influencers where brands will come to us and say, look, we want social media influencers as part of our campaign, but you got to tell us who's going to matter. So again, it goes back to what are you trying to accomplish? How many people do you want to reach? Who do you want to reach? Okay, here's 10 choices you can work with. And then the influencers like it because they don't have to talk directly to the brands and we can put together the deal. I'm going to um, pivot to a sort of advice question and then open it up to the students, if that sounds okay. Uh, I'm curious what advice you would give them about how to best prepare while still in school or as they're preparing to graduate for a career in the entertainment industry. What skills or knowledge should they gain? Um, I would start by saying I think it's great that you're here <laughs> and that you're not in New York City, and you're not in Los Angeles, and you're not in Silicon Valley. And the reason I say that is for a couple reasons. One is you, you can have a distance by which to really do your work and not get too sucked into the business of the business. And the business you know, gets really fast, and you don't have time to sort of take a step back and try and figure out what does this all mean? Um, and so I always say that the best thing, one of the best things about coming here for me was, be, was studying at a critical distance, which allowed me to really study and think about things. The second reason is because being here takes you outside of the bubbles of those communities. And those bubbles create a very um, um, uh, warped view of who the consumer is. And so what I would say is to always think about this as your home base when you think about who it is that is the audience. Remember the people in Austin, the people in Texas, and the people who aren't on the west side of Los Angeles or you know, Silver Lake or Hollywood or the people who are you know, Manhattan or in Palo Alto because ultimately the, it's, it's always about the consumer. And you always have to come back to what's the consumer doing? What does the consumer want? And the media industry for a long time has been able to say, we have a system that's going to work really well for you and impose it on you, the consumer. And that's really changing. And that's getting disrupted at a quicker and more rapid pace than ever before. So I think being here and keeping your eyes open and always remembering where you come from is really important. And then the last is to just use the courses that exist here. I was really fortunate. Tom Schatz and Horace Newcomb are the back of the room, but they were my mentors and they took me under their wing and they really helped open my eyes to the broader uh, influences that were impacting popular culture and film and TV <coughs> and media. And I think using your time here to take advantage of the fact that that's the way this um, uh, program, the RTF program, educates you um, to think about where's the business, where was the business, where is it now, and then start thinking about well, where is it going based on all that and based on what I know about the consumers and most importantly based on what I know about myself and what I want, where is it all going. And doing that thinking so that you have a point of view is really important because you want to you want to have some, you don't want to be arrogant and don't want to say I know it all because no one really knows where it's going. But unlike when I started in the business where 
I came into workplace and was told this is the rules, these are the way things work, sort of shut up and hang on in the background, do your job. You're gonna be entering, if you haven't interned or done so already, you're gonna be entering a workforce where everyone's looking to you to say, what do you like? What do you listen to? What are your friends doing? Well, how, how do you watch stuff? Because nobody knows at this <laughs> point in time. They have some broad ideas, but they don't know. And having some ability to have a point of view about that and articulate that and tie that into, um, um, he, you know, here's how we got here, here's how I translate things to you, that all is really, really important. That's a great answer and a good way to pivot to questions, which uh, Annie is ready with the microphone. And so... Uh, I can I'll, hear you. I'll repeat the question, okay. yeah, so everyone can hear. Uh, so it kind of seems like with Awesomeness TV, there's, it's very marketing driven, right? Like the first thing you saw was Gen X, right? Um, does Awesomeness TV have uh, marketing all-in-house, or is it kind of supplied by the uh, companies that have stake in Awesomeness TV? So could you all hear that question? Um, the reason that was so marketing-driven was that was made for advertisers, but I thought that sort of captured the best view of what we had existing. That was actually made for the upfront presentations. The answer to the question is yes, all marketing exists in-house. We'll work with some outside vendors on trailers and key art and things of, things of that nature. And it's interesting because we currently don't have a CMO, a chief marketing officer. We've been spending a lot of time trying to think about what we need. And in entertainment, usually a chief marketer, marketing officer is someone who gets really involved in the creative. You know, what does the campaign look like for a movie, a TV show? And we have people who can do that. And what I think we really need is someone who is who who understands the consumer better than anything else, who's sort of the voice of the consumer at the table to see this is how they're seeing the world. And it almost serves as a salesperson for us to go out to various partners, whether it be Facebook and Google, whether it be advertisers, whether it be other you know companies, and just sort of present and position us largely within the marketplace. So we've we started to take a look at people who've been involved with youth brands and not necessarily entertainment brands. And we actually just brought in someone oversee creative for us who came out of um, Vans shoes rather than a traditional marketing background because so much of marketing is about audience development and getting the community to invest in what you're doing. So it's, it's a social media exercise. It's sort of a a bit of a Pied Piper exercise as compared to traditional marketing. Sure. Since you started, one of the uh, most, uh, how do I phrase, sorry, I've been thinking about this question, I can't, um, the most successful channels have always been the ones that aren't some big like corporate uh, production company making them, it's always been stuff like Smosh or uh, PewDiePie were the original ones and now you're seeing people like uh, David Dobrik and Casey Neistat and Jake Paul, right. who are very... God forbid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, how does a company like Awesomeness compete with them in, you, in like, the world of YouTube? I think, I mean, Awesomeness has been really successful, and I can't claim any credit for it. Um, Brian started it with a guy named Joe Davola, who, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you sometimes hear Crazy Joe Davola, which is named after Crazy Joe Davola, bore no resemblance to the Joe Davola in Seinfeld, but Crazy Joe Davola, 
who's now in his early 60s, was one of MTV's first producers. And he was running Brian's TV production company. And the two of them just basically got in there and said, let's just start creating content. Like, there's such a low risk. It's not, we're not spending tons of money. Let's just put it out there and see what the audience has to say and make sure the audience feels like we're doing what they want to do versus us sort of imposing something again on them. And that really is what led to a lot of its success. And there's also been a lot of personalities on that who were either had some sort of social media footprint on their own, had some influence that were then recruited on into it, or were people who we helped grow that. Like Liza Koshy, we've really, with partnering with her, really helped to grow sort of her channel. So there, there, has, there was never a view that everything has to sort of funnel back to this one place. And that's a very sort of traditional media view, that there's a destination somewhere. And that when you think about what traditional companies do on YouTube, what they largely do is think about it as a promotional platform. You know, MTV, you know, here's a clip behind the scenes of the new TRL. Now go to the TV station, you know, TV network and watch this. And we really don't do that. We just think of that. We think of YouTube as a social media channel, not a distribution platform. So it's just part of all these other social media platforms. And a lot of it is letting very young people produce the content, letting a lot helping fund people to do what they want to do and trying to make it as, I guess, authentic to that platform as possible, um, which, is, which is just really different than traditional media approach, which is sort of use it as, a, again, just it's another sort of distribution platform. Um, so you a little bit earlier about how um, like generation, this new generation is consuming media on like several different platforms, several different times, different places. Um, and I wondered if you saw the future of that as converging. Like, do you see media and social media converging at a point of, of like interactive media, or where do you see that going? Or do you see like a fine line between them? Because I know like a lot of MTV is like, yeah. oh, do this hashtag, and they try to get people to like engage themselves. But do you see like a like a move towards interactive media in itself? It's a li the, the question was. Do I see the industry moving a little more to interactive media where social media is more integrated into, um, into sort of the linear uh, experience of watching something passively? And that's uh, some of what we played with at Xbox Studios. Xbox was this weird, really short-lived uh, experiment. I, I was there at the very tail end of it. But the goal was Xbox has this gold subscription base of now it's I don't know, now it's probably about 20 million people. It used to be much higher. They were paying five bucks a month for multiplayer gaming, and the thought was, what if you started to layer video content on to no different than what Amazon did when they layered video content on top of the Prime subscription, that basically a subscription is a subscription. And you sort of are seeing that a lot. Like, a lot of people are poking around Spotify, and Spotify may be too big right now, but saying, well, they have subscribers, so we can do whatever we want on top of that, because you already have subscribers. Um, and what was unique about Xbox was the fact that the platform itself um, was essentially some version of the Windows operating system. So you could integrate the way that you serve video up on it really facilitated the ability to interact with it. So we were playing around a lot with that. 
And that's what got me the most excited. And the way we thought about it was that um, there wasn't just one doorway into a narrative, that there were multiple doors into narrative. And that, um, and that is sort of similar to game. And that, um, and that I think that holds true with social media. I mean, some of what we try to do, which is pretty rudimentary, is to make sure we extend storytelling out across social platforms, reach character. You know, mostly the actor has a profile. We're sort of bringing people in as soon as we start producing it. And it's going to be a small audience, but sort of bring them in. So there's different types of entertainment experiences. And ideally, during that creative process, there is a bit of engagement that's occurring with the audience. Um, where I think it's really going to accelerate would probably be in and around sports and news and things that you're watching sort of live and experiencing with other people, or where you could tag a comment to a frame of video. What we were playing with at Xbox was how do you essentially sort of replicate that social media experience of watching live and getting you know, people who you follow commenting on something? It's hard to do with traditional entertainment like Game of Thrones, because you're going to spoil the experience for someone if they're not watching at the same time. But if you tag that comment to a specific frame that you signed up for and through a platform could essentially binge watch something but have the experience of watching it with your friends, even though no one's operating in real time, that would be pretty cool. And I think Google, YouTube, as they're starting to play with these various user interfaces that are, are getting integrated into um, things like YouTube TV and all these other virtual, you know, MPBDs, MVPDs, sorry. Um, I think you're going to see more and more of that. Because what's, what's really sort of clearly happening is a couple things. Is one is the big tech companies are, are taking over. And when you think of the next generation of consolidation, it's likely going to be, it's no surprise AT&T bought Time Warner, which is Turner, Warner Brothers, you know, HBO. And if you look at what they did, was the first thing they did. Hey, you, you want to sign up for AT&T? If you'll sign a two-year contract, I'm giving you HBO for life. Like, that's the value for AT&T is to reduce subscriber churn on AT&T Mobile, and they're using these brands as the means to do that. And that's the world we're in. And Apple's making an investment now, and, and, and Amazon's making investment, and Amazon's market cap last Friday increased by, I think, $65 billion, which would allow it to buy Fox and Viacom outright in one day, just the stock increase. So all these tech companies are likely going to end up owning the remaining conglomerates, and it's just going to continue to ratchet up. While that's happening, they're capturing all this data. So they're trying to optimize the experience for the consumer so everything becomes personal, so that we're really heading towards that era of everyone has their own network, no one network is alike. And how you get introduced to things is increasingly driven by that data, which drives algorithms, which exposes you to new content, which is what YouTube's all about, which is what Netflix is all about. And those only get increasingly 
more efficient, especially with AI coming into play. Um, and so that integration is going to be a natural tool set that's going to exist. And then the real question becomes, I think, the fun thing for you all to probably play with because social media is endemic to you as compared to myself, who I didn't grow up with it, is how that then completely weaves into storytelling. And it will in some way. Um, you know, the question is how. Yeah. Oops. Oops. I'm impressed. For putting her to work. For a number of questions this late on a Monday. <laughs> um, Y'all all candied up. In that game last night. Um, I had a couple questions. One is about the name Awesomeness TV, which is kind of a provocative title. And I was just wondering if that uh, if there were any translation issues with the branding of that title there when it is. comes to the global market. Yeah, certain international <laughs> people scratch their heads. Yeah, okay, so that was basically one question. But you know what happens with that? Because I remember when Brian launched it, I thought he was nuts. And I was talking to Barry Meyer, who was the former head of Warner Brothers, who just recently retired, and he was like, I have never understood that. Um, and I get it, but there is something to be said for coming up with something that stands for something and risks polarizing an audience in an era of so much choice. And it, and it stands out, and it has an attitude and a point of view. Yeah, I really agree. Um, and then my second question was about educational content, and I didn't know if uh, the brand, in terms of its focus on the youth market, um, had any other branch that was uh, focused on educational uh, content in any way, like documentary so, or anything. I wouldn't necessarily call it educational content, but in the manner in which you're describing it, I would. We, um, we started, uh, right around the time I came in, we, we started an initiative to create essentially awesomeness news. And we've spent a lot of time, we brought in, uh, had to have editorial, and we're currently acquiring a, 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 a newsletter that um, targets young women. Um, and I, I, I thought it was odd, and we'll see what happens, I may be wrong, but I thought it was odd that we were having this daily relationship with our community, and we were presenting a certain type of content without sort of representing the fuller scope of what's going on in their lives. And with Trump and everything that is the chaos in and around Trump, let alone sort of the, you know, all these tragedies around shootings and now North Korea and all these things that young people are concerned about, to ask them to divorce themselves of that and only experience our brand as this sort of escape didn't feel right. Now it's ultimately up to the consumer to choose what they want to engage with or not, but I felt like we both had an opportunity and to some degree a bit of a responsibility to try and see what, the com what was important to the community and be able to create dialogue within that community. And the initial instinct of the editorial director we hired was, okay, let's educate the community. And we said, look, if we ever come across like a teacher or a parent or an authoritarian figure where we have an agenda, social agenda, that we're trying to impose on the consumer, that's really gonna be a big mistake. But if we can catalyze conversation and draw out of that 
some questions and provide context to the discussion so it feels helpful to the discussion as compared to we're trying to shape the discussion, then that can be educational without coming across as an educator, if that makes sense. Well, great questions, and we're out of time. So thank you so much. This is terrific. Thank you for listening to Media Industry Conversations. For more information about upcoming speakers or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash MIC or follow us on Twitter at RTFMIC. If you have a moment, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you love the show, let us know. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major. And the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you join us again next time for another media industry conversation. There is a land, a western land, mighty wonder.